Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For most of the war in Ukraine, Russia didn't formally have a battlefield figurehead leading the operation. Now they do, and he's, by all accounts, a nasty piece of work. We look at the past and the predilections of the guy that colleagues call General Armageddon. And sometimes really good science looks like scientists just having fun. We learn about a project to teach a dish full of brain cells how to play the video game Pong. But the experiment can teach the experimenters quite a bit, too. First up, though. In a car park in Akron, Ohio, on a chilly Sunday evening, a few hundred people gathered for a rally of Democratic candidates. Headlining were Amelia Sykes, running for the House. Please give it up and welcome your next congresswoman, Amelia Sykes. This is the most important election of our lifetime. And Tim Ryan, running for the Senate. I believe that the issue of freedom is on the ballot. And what we have seen in the last three months come from the Supreme Court is an absolute violation of the freedom of women in the United States of America. When my colleague Stevie Hertz asked attendees what concerns they had going into the election, one issue came up again and again. And what are the issues that are particularly important to you in this election? Uh, abortion's probably up there. Climate change, women's rights, and saving democracy. Well, number one, women's rights. I come from an era when it was keep women barefoot and pregnant when I first started working in the 60s. And what I see now is a whole section of the country turning against the rights of women. In this, the latest episode in our midterm series examining power and politics ahead of November's elections, we're looking at how much the issue of abortion after the overturning of Roe versus Wade is impacting voters' decisions. For the past couple of months, we've been going to different House districts around the country, each chosen to illuminate a salient theme in American politics. This week, we're in Ohio's 13th district. This newly drawn district stretches from the Cleveland suburbs through the cities of Akron and Canton and covers the rural areas in between. It narrowly voted for Joe Biden in 2020. And this year, the race for the House is set to be close. And abortion could prove the decisive issue. On June 24th, the Supreme Court issued a ruling in Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health that overturned Roe versus Wade, 
a 50-year-old ruling that protected a woman's right to terminate a pregnancy. Hours later, a law in Ohio went into effect that banned abortions after cardiac activity is detected, or about six weeks, without exceptions for rape or incest. Ohio found itself in the national spotlight about a week later, when a 10-year-old girl who had been raped was forced to leave the state to end her pregnancy. The Indianapolis Star reported first of a 10-year-old rape victim from Ohio who had traveled over state lines for an abortion. Her doctor says she's six weeks pregnant. He's now trying to work with other medical professionals to transfer the young girl to Indiana to get medical care. Among those horrified by the case, President Biden. Imagine being that little girl. Just, I'm serious, just imagine being that little girl. Last month, courts put a temporary block on Ohio's law while it's litigated. So in Ohio, as in a number of states with critical races this year, including Michigan, North Carolina, and Arizona, laws surrounding abortion are in flux, with bans looming. This is an issue that is top of mind for a lot of voters that impacts their physical health, their financial well-being, and their ability to live comfortably and securely in our communities. So Amelia Sykes, the Democrat running for Congress, says that it matters a lot to voters. But in a state that Donald Trump won by eight points in 2020, Democratic candidates are framing it in a way to ensure the broadest possible appeal. Tim Ryan, in a close Senate race, ties abortion to a wider argument about freedom. Sykes makes it about security. The ability to decide your future is something that people have had security in, and now they do not. And so just as the economy, just as crime, just as democracy have all become issues about whether we feel secure in our future, we're hearing the same themes over and over again. Tom Lapis is the executive director of the Stark County Republican Party. It covers the lower, more conservative and rural part of the district. It's much like being a pastor or priest at a church. Uh, around Christmas time. Everyone wants to come in and uh, decorate the altar and get involved. So it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of excitement, and we're just making the best of it. In the campaign office a few weeks out from an election, a huge picture of Ronald Reagan watches over the volunteers as they make calls. Lapis says the energy around abortion has changed since the summer when the Supreme Court's decision came down. I think briefly the Democrats gained some momentum but it seems short-lived. There didn't seem to be that large of a, a momentum shift. A lot of our people have been very concerned about the economy. They've been concerned about crime. Those are the two issues that we hear the most about. Abortion does not seem to be a forefront issue right now. But for Republicans Madison Jesiato Gilbert, who's running for the House, and J.D. Vance, the Senate candidate, their anti-abortion positions are part of their campaigns, prominent on ads and leaflets. Because, Lapis says, Dobbs may have galvanized pro-choice Democrats, but it's doing the same for the other side, too. Columbus had its first March for Life just recently. A lot of the pro-life base is very energized by the new possibilities they have to win at the state level for pro-life rights. Michaela Walther is a 19-year-old freshman at Walsh University, a Catholic school in Canton. This year, she started volunteering for the local Republican Party. 
So I was raised in a, you know, a Catholic home. And so obviously abortion is, you know, a big one. And especially with everything that's going on right now, that's a big one. We we all know that, you know, this has just granted power back to the states. And it's now important to, to make sure that as states, we, you know, declare it illegal, but also bring it back to the federal level. But in polls, more than half of Democrats say that the issue of abortion is important to them compared to just one-third of Republicans. When I heard the decision that the Supreme Court made in Dobbs v. Jackson Whole Women's Health, I wondered what the political ramifications of it would be given that this is an election year. John Prito is The Economist's U.S. editor. And I have to say, my first instinct was that it wouldn't have that big of an effect. Abortion politics is so polarized in America and people who really mind about abortion have known for such a long time where the two parties stand that I wasn't sure that this would move that many votes. And actually, I think in retrospect, I was wrong about that. The first electoral test after the Dobbs decision happened in August in Kansas. There, in a state that Donald Trump won by 15 points, about three-fifths of voters opposed changing the state constitution to allow an abortion ban. The Kansas referendum was a harbinger, I think. The other thing that's changed my mind on the impact of abortion in the midterms is if you look at our own election model and some of the other statistical models that try and predict what's going to happen, and you can see a real inflection point after the Supreme Court handed down the Dobbs judgment. Democrats' chances of holding the Senate went up quite markedly after that decision. Most Americans want neither a complete ban nor no restrictions at all. But for years, Republican candidates haven't had to play to that middle. So a lot of Republican politicians in particular have been able over the years to adopt pretty extreme positions on abortion. So no abortions, even in the case of rape or incest, for example. And those have been, you know, free positions for them to take in the sense that they never had to take the consequences of those positions because the Supreme Court had decided the law of the land. Once Roe v. Wade was overturned, those became real positions, right? So Republicans in that position suddenly looked really extreme in the way that they hadn't done before. Some Republican candidates have responded by trying to downplay their positions on abortions. The Senate candidate in Arizona removed a line on his website describing himself as 100% pro-life. But Democrats have tried to reinforce the distinction. Last week, President Joe Biden said that the first bill he'll send to the next Congress would be to codify the protections of Roe, ensuring a national right to abortion. I think the Dobbs decision will make the midterms different than they would be otherwise. I think Democrats would be doing worse than they would had the Supreme Court not handed down that decision. That said, the key Senate races in this midterm elections and the key House races, they're going to be really close, right? And given they're so close, there are a whole load of things that you could point to. Inflation, Joe Biden's low approval ratings, etc. And so it's, it's impossible really to pick one issue and say, well, that was the thing that caused the result. On a Monday lunchtime in a public library halfway between Akron and Canton, nine women gathered... Some of them knew each other, most didn't. They were there for a meeting of red, wine, and blue. We are a grassroots organization dedicated to mobilizing suburban women to combat right-wing extremism and MAGAism. Missy McGinnis is the organizer leading the meeting. Under that 
umbrella of basically preserving our democracy, we also focus on several issues. So reproductive rights is huge, but it's not the only one. It's also LGBTQ plus rights, gun violence prevention, and public education. The aim of the session is to train the women in relational organizing, which basically means talking to other suburban women about the election. It's a simple concept that talking to people you know, friends, family, your networks, is orders of magnitude more effective than strangers talking to strangers. It's 15 times more effective than knocking on a stranger's door, 22 times more effective than a robo-text message. Talking about what brought them that day, most haven't been very active before. It's partly the Dobbs decision that's energized them. I myself was someone who had to have an illegal abortion when I was a teenager, and so I know what it's like, and I know what a horror it can be. So I knew that the minute that happened when the Supreme Court did what it did this time around, that I had to get active again. As I was getting ready to retire and just happened to coincide with the Dodd's decision, I'm like, well, now I know what I have to spend my energy doing because there is nothing more important to me right now than saving democracy from the crazies that are out there um, just taking away all of our rights. Many of them haven't been involved in political organizing before either. And abortion is a big motivating factor, but it's just one. I'm really concerned about all of it, not just Dobbs, but all of it, all of, I mean, the right to vote, the, mm-hmm. you know, the voting that will be legit, you know, women's rights, LGBTQ rights, everything. The cruelty needs to go, mm-hmm. absolutely needs to go. So, bye. The overturning of Roe and the looming state-level battles over reproductive rights have clearly galvanized at least some Democrats. But it also seems to have done the same for the other side. After all, they got what they wanted for decades, Roe overturned. And with inflation soaring and Republicans hitting Democrats hard on crime, abortion may end up being just one of many concerns on voters' minds when they head into the ballot box in November. For more coverage of America's upcoming elections, listen to our sister podcast, Checks and Balance. And subscribers can join the Checks and Balance team, including me, for a live Q&A about the midterms. We'll be exploring the most heated races and considering what their outcomes might mean for America. And you'll get a chance to put your questions to me and the team. We'll be live at 9 p.m. UK time, 4 p.m. on America's East Coast, tomorrow, Thursday, October 27th. You can sign up now at economist.com slash checks webinar. And there's a link in the show notes. You can also find all the Economist midterms coverage at economist.com slash midterms 2022. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America NA, copyright 2024. 
On October 10th, more than 300 towns and cities across Ukraine were hit with the largest Russian air bombardment since the early days of the war. A flurry of deadly missile strikes targeted bridges and residential high-rises in at least 11 cities across the country, including the capital. It came in the aftermath of the explosion of a bridge to Crimea, widely thought to be Ukraine's doing. Russian President Putin says the assault is revenge for a deadly blast over the weekend on a key bridge linking Russia and Crimea. As we keep reporting, the special military operation in Ukraine is simply not going to plan for President Vladimir Putin. And as our correspondents keep warning, the worse it goes, the more nasty the fight is likely to become. One way for Mr. Putin to ensure that is to put someone suitably nasty in charge of it. Sergei Surovikin has been appointed the overall commander for the war in Ukraine. Now, he's known as General Armageddon by his colleagues, and that's because he has quite a fearsome reputation, which was hardened over decades. Maria Vilcek is a news editor at The Economist. He's believed to have actually directed the war for months, but on October 8th, he was formally appointed to the role, and that marks a cruel new chapter in the war. And what's his background? So he was born in the Siberian city of Novosibirsk in 1966, and he's believed to have started his military career in Afghanistan with the Soviet Special Forces in the 80s. Then later, he made a name for himself during an attempted hardliner coup in Moscow in 1991. Mingling with the rush hour traffic, Red Army armored personnel carriers on the streets of Moscow this morning, heading to the Kremlin. They first moved in at 4 a.m., the first sign of the coup d'etat that removed Mikhail Gorbachev from power. And he was one of the very few officers who actually followed orders to crush pro-democracy protesters. He then spent six months in prison after soldiers under his command killed three civilians. But these charges were eventually dismissed. But with that kind of record behind him, it's sort of surprising that he would be in the position he's in now. Well, so that anecdote, which is usually appended to every biography of General Sorovikin, also shows his extreme readiness to execute orders. And I think that in part explains General Sorovikin's very quick rise up the military ranks to where he is today. And then he furthered his reputation for ruthlessness as well during the Chechen wars. He reportedly promised to kill free Chechens for every Russian soldier who he lost. Then later in Syria, he secured the Medal of a Hero of Russia, which is the country's highest honorary title. And in 2017, he received the most unlikely promotion, I believe for the first time in Russia's history, someone with little to no experience of aviation was promoted to head the country's air force. And two years later, he led Russian forces as they began the bloody capture of Idlib province in northwestern Syria. And Human Rights Watch, which is a pressure group, believes that that campaign killed 1,600 civilians and displaced 1.4 million people. So essentially, he got so far by being so relentlessly, reliably brutal. But, but why is it that he's been put in post now as head of the Ukrainian operation? So this promotion is seen as a response to failure. Russia has been pushed out of territories that it's only recently annexed and declared to be its own. And those humiliations make clear that changes need to be made in how it is conducting the war. 
General Surovikin has had quite a good record in it so far. He took command of the Southern Front in Ukraine in June, and he's orchestrated some of Russia's most significant advances there. But what's important to note is that General Surovikin is the first to be officially appointed as the overall commander of the war. And that speaks to some of Russia's problems with its command and control architecture. The appointments may be a way of trying to improve communication between units that have at times had incoherent strategies and clashed. But also, Russia has a problem with appallingly low morale. And this may be a way to find a figurehead for disaffected troops. As one of the experts I spoke to described it to me, he said that they need someone who would lead them into battle against all odds. And it seems that General Sorovikin fits the bill to some extent. And the ruthless reputation might fit the bill for President Vladimir Putin, who's who's under pressure from hardliners to get even more hardline in Ukraine. Yes, so this appointment certainly does seem to be also a way to appease the growing chorus of hardline critics who accuse the Kremlin of being too soft on Ukraine. So there's a whole cast of quite nasty and shady characters who quite like him. One of them is Yevgeny Prigozhin, who we spoke about recently on this show. He recently came out as the leader of the Wagner Group, which is an outfit of mercenaries who have been present in Ukraine since 2014. But also Ramzan Kadyrov, who is the strongman leader of Chechnya. Now, both of these guys have blamed Sergei Shoigu, the defense minister, for Russia's failures in Ukraine. Both of them are also quite hawkish, and both of them have very vocally embraced General Surovikin in his new post. And so what's your take on whether or not he will act as that figurehead and and lead them to greater and more ruthless glory? I think we put a lot of focus on who the commander is. And there's certainly a lot of pressure on General Surovikin to turn things around in Russia's faltering invasion. And if he fails to make his mark, his stint at the top could be as short-lived as that of his two previous de facto leaders of the war, Alexander Dvornikov and Gennady Zhitko. But there's only so much a general can do. So at this point in the war, Russia has lots of crippling problems. For one, it lacks equipment and manpower on the front. And its soldiers, many of them who come from the recent partial mobilization, are quite low on morale. It is possible that he will introduce harsher punishments for dissenters. But also, it seems that how good a manager General Surovikin is may matter as much as how good he is at strategy. He may also inflict more terror on Ukrainians in an attempt to force them into submission. But for all the brutality it will unleash, General Surovikin's appointment is probably unlikely to reverse Russia's battlefield humiliations. The problems it has are just too big. Maria, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jason. Imagine yourself in a lab. There's a computer screen with a game of Pong playing. The classic Atari game from the 70s. Abby Bertix writes about science for The Economist. There's one paddle on the left and a ball moving around. The paddle's moving up and down, gracefully deflecting the ball back to the right. You're looking around and you're, you're trying to see what is playing this game of Pong. But this game isn't hooked up to a standard controller. There's no human playing it. 
you follow the wires and you see that it's connected to a small dish and a tiny chip smaller than the nail of your pinky. And on that chip, there is a thin film of organic material. So what is on this chip, Abby? So this chip, this setup, is called dish brain. And on top of the chip is not an actual brain, but it's a collection of neurons. It was devised by scientists at Cortical Labs in Melbourne, Australia. And they have taught these neurons to play Pong. Taught them how? The scientists experimented with two different types of neurons. They first tried neurons directly out of a mouse embryo. And the other way they wanted to try was from human pluripotent stem cells. So you can't reach into a human embryo and take the neurons. That's not exactly ethical. But you can take pluripotent stem cells and turn them into pretty much any kind of tissue. And in this case, you can turn the stem cells into neurons. So they've taken mouse brain cells, human brain cells, and done all of this just to make a thing that plays Pong? Yeah, it sounds really crazy if you think about it. But there are not a lot of ways that scientists have currently to understand how neurons exactly work. You have artificial neural networks, which you can probe on computers with numbers. And we now know that those are not at all like the neural networks in your brain. So you can study them, but only learn so much out of them. And then if we want to understand how neurons in the brain work, for human beings, you can't exactly poke and prod all that much. So Pong is a proof of concept. It's meant to figure out how neurons react to stimuli in a closed-loop type situation. Well, talk me through the closed loop then. How do you train this little group of cells to play a 1970s video game? So in order for neurons to learn, there needs to be an input and an output and some sort of feedback connecting the two. And that's where the magic of this Pong game comes in. So the input for the neurons, think of it as the neurons are sensing the environment here. They're seeing what's going on on the computer screen. And they do this on the chip via eight electrodes. These electrodes are giving little zaps to the nerve cells. And the location of the zaps correspond to where the paddle is and where the ball is. If the ball and the paddle are really close, they're going to be getting zaps at a high frequency. And if the paddle and the ball are really far apart, they're going to be getting slower zaps. And then if the paddle's on the top of the screen and the ball's on the bottom, one electrode might fire. If the paddle and the ball are right next to each other, another electrode might fire. Basically, there is some mapping between the state of the game on the computer screen and the zapping that's going on. The neurons are also able to control the computer via the output region, which could also be thought of as the motor region. So there are areas on the chip that, if the neurons fire, will correspond to moving the paddle up. And there are other areas on the chip that if the neurons fire in those areas will correspond to the paddle moving down. So at the beginning, before the neurons know anything, the paddle's just kind of going to be moving randomly. They, they don't know what corresponds to up, what corresponds to down. But how do you take that setup and turn it into a good Pong player? This is where the learning scheme, the feedback, comes in. We have the input and output, and now we need the carrot and stick approach. And in this case, the stick is randomness. So neurons really do not like randomness. They like for things to be predictable. While the game is playing, 
the zapping of the electrodes continues, as it should, along with the trajectory of the ball, the moving of the paddles. But if the game is lost, if the ball makes it past the paddle, then there's four seconds of random zapping. And the neurons will do everything possible to try to avoid that. In doing so, they reorganize their firing in a way to keep the game going, and that means that they implicitly end up learning to play Pong. So how long does it take then to teach this dish of cells how to play Pong? It took the neurons only five minutes to learn to play the game, which is pretty incredible. And they compared the mice cells and the human cells at how well they were able to learn after about 20 minutes. And they found that the human cells slightly but consistently outperformed the mice. And this is really interesting because for a long time, scientists thought, oh, a neuron's a neuron. But that's definitely not the case. So it's not just scientists seeing what they can do. There are real insights to be had here. Yeah, definitely. There's insights along multiple trajectories. For biologists, it lets them see how real-life neurons adapt to feedback and can learn and can grow connections. This is also really exciting for computer scientists who are interested in artificial intelligence and machine learning because the artificial neural networks at present are very good at certain problems, but they are very lacking at others. So Pong was a really cool proof of concept, but it could also probably be taught other things to find other patterns beyond the realm of Atari. And I think that's what's really exciting to computer scientists, to see what sort of learning will be possible with this brand of neural network. Abby, thanks very much for explaining all that. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. Or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.